Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In the 1960s, King's Cross fast became a tourist magnet, an entertainment mecca with its notorious red light district, strip clubs, sex workers, all walks of life flocked in their hundreds to the area, including American servicemen looking for some R&R. The Cross held on to its title as the epicentre of Sydney's nightlife, with its heady combination of music, booze, sex and drugs. The streets flooded every Friday and Saturday night with people from all over Sydney, in fact, all over the world. On the outside, it was the place to be, but that 300-metre strip from the Coca-Cola sign down Darlinghurst Road was also volatile and dangerous. Severe public intoxication, brawls and glassings happened weekly. There were countless assaults and, over time, a number of deaths. Two years apart, but in almost exactly the same place, teenagers Thomas Kelly and Daniel Christie were killed in separate one-punch attacks on the street in King's Cross. Their senseless deaths gave way to a movement which brought the King's Cross party scene as it was, and those in a number of Sydney suburbs, to a screeching halt. This is the story of how it happened and what comes next. A warning... This podcast has strong references to violence, suicide and sexual assault. If any of it raises issues for you, there is help. You can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or 1800 RESPECT. It's nine o'clock on Saturday night in Sydney and the city streets are buzzing with party girls. It's Mardi Gras and the biggest celebration the city has seen in at least 12 months pre-COVID-19. Under the city, in the depths of Town Hall, there is a dozen people in blue and yellow vests. They're also getting ready for a big night ahead. Mardi Gras is extremely different to any Mardi Gras we've ever done before. Everyone we've spoken to, police... They have no predictions for tonight. They have absolutely no clue. City of Sydney just as lost. All the police have predicted is that everyone is going to filter from Moore Park down through those main streets like Oxford, Flinders, Albion Street to get into the city. And a lot of places down here do have ticketed events, but they end quite early and then after that it's a free-for-all. So it could get really quiet or we could have half of Sydney in the city tonight. I am Kristen, I'm 21 years old and I'm the acting program coordinator for the Take Care program. The Take Care teams are groups of largely volunteers who on a Friday and Saturday night split off and rove Sydney's party hotspots. They're searching for wayward young revellers. 
you, you never know what you're going to see, you never know what you're going to get. Some nights you'll have absolutely nothing to do and other nights you could be dealing with intox after intox and then a fight will happen and you know then you might find someone who's lost and they need directions. There, there's so many things and one of the good things about our program is there's so much opportunity to help people. Our producer Sydney Peed went out with one of the Take Care teams to see for herself what they see on a night out in the inner city. Where are we going? So we are going to go up the north end of the city towards the rocks and particularly check out the Ivy and Argyle, the establishment, just the real popular venues along George Street up towards that direction. Are those areas pretty notorious for you guys? Yes and no. I mean, they are busy venues, so if something is going to happen, the likelihood of it happening there is bigger. Um, Kristen, Sydney and two volunteers keep walking. The city is pumping. Despite these COVID times, there are heaps of people out. Caitlin just radioed. She's taking someone back to the tent. So I don't know how far she made it up Oxford Street, but I don't think it would have been that far. Does tonight feel like it's going to be kind of big for you? Yeah. It is a fun atmosphere, but it takes a turn quickly when they come across a young man. He slouched over a retaining wall under the rail bridge near Circular Quay. There's a huge puddle of vomit around him, and he's on his own. Where did you go to tonight? Just around here. Yeah. 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 Right. <coughs> the take care team stay with him a while. They give him some water. He is conscious and talking and tells us he's 19 and that his mates have gone to the club, but he is a mess. There's a bit of language for this bit. I feel so shit, honestly. You probably can't tell, but nah, I got fucking hit. Bang, hits the ground and it fucking. You know, I could be wrong, I could be off, but seeing how much you're throwing up yeah. compared to how well you're actually talking to me. Right. I, I just can't say for sure that, you know, it's because you've had too much to drink. Yeah. I'm too fucked. Yeah. We're going to take this male back to the safe space just to let him sober up a bit. I'm a bit hesitant to leave him on his own just because he has disclosed that he has been hit in the face which does does worry me a little bit. What do you think it could be? Well if he's been hit in the head it could be a possible head injury um, and you know alcohol can mask that and honestly it could be nothing but it could be something and I'd rather be safe than sorry. They start walking slowly herding this young bloke towards the safe tent in town hall He's upset. I lost my friends because I blacked out. But Are you calling your friends? I have, but I think they're in the Argyle because oh, I'm so I'm so pissed off. Someone hit me in the head. Yeah. I don't understand why people are so violent. I had no idea who he was. I literally just got hit in the fucking head. He was so aggro. I asked him where the Argyle was, and he fucking smashed me in the fucking head. And then I fucking dropped to the ground. And then I'm blacked out, now I'm here, and I, I fucking no idea what's going on. 
ruin my night, honestly. I thought that was all over. After the King's Cross thing, I was like, fucking, oh, fuck. You know, fucking hit in the head. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Where are all these diseases that everyone is talking about? Governments love pandemics. And that was based on false information. I was a climate change denier. The conspiracy virus, examining two hugely prevalent conspiracy theories. We must declare a climate emergency. You cannot leave it any longer. There are so many individuals and countries who are profiting from what we're going through right now. Search for 10 News First Person wherever you get your podcasts to listen. I thought that was all over. After the King's Cross thing, I was like, fucking, oh, fuck. You know, fucking hit in the head. For a young person, that King's Cross thing might seem like an urban legend, a vague event from the past learnt from people who remember. In July of 2012, 18-year-old Thomas Kelly was walking hand-in-hand with his girlfriend. It was his first night out in the cross when out of nowhere he was punched in the face by a stranger. He fell straight back, his head smacked down on the pavement. Here's Ralph Kelly, Tom's father. We were living in the Southern Highlands um, on a Saturday night, the 7th of July 2012, when the phone went quite late at night, about 20 past 10 on a Saturday night. Uh, We'd been watching a movie. Um, Madeline, who was um, 17 at the time, and Stuart, 14, uh, we're just getting ready for bed and the phone rang and Kathy th- thought it was Tom, you know, that he'd be lost somewhere because he hadn't, you know, he hadn't been out before in the, in the city or King's Cross. And, uh, it was some business hospital with a social worker on the phone saying, you need to come in right now. And so Kathy said, St. Vincent's Hospital, something about Tom. I don't know what the man's trying to say to me. Will you take it? And I asked him a number of questions. I said, you know, what's happened? He said, I just need you to come in. And I said, but I really need to know what's happened. And he said, you just need to get in here right now. And made that drive into Sydney. It was about an hour 45. Um, everything's just rushing through your mind. When we arrived onto William Street from the tunnel, and, you know, we were turning right, you know, to go up the hill, um, what kind of struck us was thousands of young people just walking up that hill, thousands upon thousands. And by this stage, it was um, 12.30 in the morning. And we both commented, oh, wow, look at all the people. It's, it was like a sea of people. And then when we got there, there was a, there was a paddy wagon parked outside the hospital. And I thought, oh, this is strange. And then I thought to myself, oh, probably not. You know, there are incidents all the time. And we parked the car. And as we walked up to the glass doors of emergency, uh, these two policemen were there and said to us, are you Mr. and Mrs. Kelly? And it was at that moment I knew something awful had happened to him. And they just took us through the emergency out to the back of emergency and um, into a room where we met the registrar who basically told it for what it was. He just said, you need to prepare yourself for the death of your son. 
And he said, Thomas is in, a, in surgery at the moment. They're operating on his um, skull to relieve the pressure on his brain. Um, but it's not good. And um, my brother-in-law was there, Gavin was there, um, trying to comfort us. It, it became surreal. It became, you became numb, like there were things going on around you, but you weren't really cognizant of what was going on around you. And um, we didn't get into ICU till about 4am uh, to see him. <clears throat> and the neurologist was there and said, look, um, very much like the registrar, he's, um, he's in a very, very bad way. We believe he's probably brain dead. Um, he is breathing um, you know, artificially and um, you need to just prepare for the worst. He had things coming out of him everywhere, you know, everywhere. Ralph and Kathy made the impossible decision not to prolong Tom's life. It was um, probably the worst moment of my life. I don't think it can get much worse than that. Plan to turn off his life support at 8pm. They um, say to you, we're, we're going we're to take everything off him now. And it can take between a minute and an hour for him to pass away. He had our hands on his chest, feeling his heart beating. And it didn't take Tom very long to pass. It was probably about five minutes at the most, but you could feel the strength of his heartbeat. And then it just got less and less. And then as his heartbeat got less, he started to turn blue. And then um, there was no one else in the room with us. They'd all left. And, but obviously they were monitoring it by camera. And then the, the head of emergency said, um, he's passed. I had to go back at 2am uh, to identify him. I'm not sure why. Um, obviously, there's a reason, but we did. But when we got to the hospital, we were met again by two very big police officers, very tall. And they took us down to the morgue to see Tom. And, um, you know, he looked at peace. Um, and uh, as we were going back up in the lift, one of the police officers was crying. And uh, I, th I just thought to myself, oh, this is really strange. You know, you know, if he's with King's Cross, he must see terrible incidents all the time. And I asked him, I said, why are you crying? And he said, I have three children about the ages of your kids. And I can't imagine if it was one of mine. It was about 10 days later, the man who punched Tom was found and charged by police. Ralph was consumed by the investigation and his grief. It drove him to start the Thomas Kelly Foundation, one of the loudest voices in the push for laws to crack down on alcohol-fuelled violence in the cross and mandatory sentencing for one-punch attacks. So I think, um, yeah, we did start the foundation. Um, I was working 18 hours a day and... Um, it, it is a lot of work. It is a lot of work. But the grief drives you. It gives you purpose to stay alive. I mean, I was a father in distress, big distress. But tensions elsewhere were starting to boil over. Tom's death had become a political powder keg amid growing calls for action. In February 2014, the lockout laws overhauled New South Wales liquor and venue regulations. And being the face of the changes brought the Kellys under intense scrutiny as well. 
every time someone was assaulted in the city, um, we'd get media calling us, asking us for comment. And my, my reply was not that I didn't care. I obviously did. I, you know, violence is a terrible thing. Um, but I don't, didn't think it was right for our family to make comment on someone else's family. Um, and so that was one reason. Secondly, um, Maddie had been at university. She was at Macquarie University doing law. And um, they were debating the lockout laws in classrooms that she was in. They didn't know that, that Tom's sister was in that classroom. She found that incredibly difficult. Their second son, Stuart, like his father, had been more vocal in the media on these issues. Here he is at about 16 years of age at a press conference in July 2014, shortly after the sentence of his brother's killer was doubled by the New South Wales Court of Criminal Appeal. I want to see the values and relationships. We're having fun with friends on a night out means just that, existing without the need for excessive drinking, where any violence as a result of drinking should never exist. Tom's killer was in jail, but the hole in the hearts of Ralph, Cathy, Madeline and Stuart hadn't even begun to heal. You know, Stu used to play on the, on the, on the PlayStation, you know, they'd play rugby, uh, you know, there'd be screams of laughter coming out of the bedroom when they were playing it. You know, all those lovely things that you uh, uh, cherish memories now. Uh, I spoke to Michael Carr-Gregg, um, he said, look, Stuart, your children will say, show signs one day of the grief, whether they start drinking or drugs or just completely go off the rails, it will come, it will explode like a volcano one day. So we're very cognizant of, of for that for both Maddie and Stu. Um, but Stu went back to boarding school. Um, Tom's funeral was held there at the school in the school grounds. Um, so he saw all of that. And, um, you know, for 14 to watch your brother, uh, die in that way is, and what he went through and what Madeline's been through, I, I as a parent, I don't understand it and the grief that I've got. But imagine, you know, two children watching their brother die. After he finished the HSC, we took him and Madeline overseas. Um, the reason we did that is because Christmases are really difficult days for, you know, that period is, you know, everyone's happy or you, you see the happiness. Obviously, there are some people who aren't. And uh, so we took him overseas. He was a little bored, you know, going into into art galleries and things like that and shopping. Um, and then he started at the University of Sydney um, and um, St Paul's College uh, within the university. It was here on the first night at the college in February 2016 that something triggered a dramatic shift in Stuart. A confident house captain, he was well-liked at his school, but he turned into someone his family just didn't recognise. A day later, about 18 hours later, he called us and said, you know, come and get me. And um, he was broken, completely broken. And he was a sobbing mess. This is a, a boy who was now 19. Um, his birthday's in January. And he was just completely gutted. Did he tell you what had happened? Um, he didn't, but it was something, we went back to the college to pick up all his um, clothes and um, everything about a week later. So I went with Cathy, um, Stuart wouldn't come back. And um, and Cathy said to me, look at his bed, he hasn't slept in it. And um, he hadn't. And so where was he that night? Um, Stuart wasn't the kind of child that would just roam the city or roam the university grounds. There's no way. He would have called me and said, Dad, come and get me. Police and the Kelly family were never able to fully investigate what happened to Stuart that night. He simply wouldn't tell them. They since learned Stuart and other first-year students were hazed, a common practice to initiate newcomers through degrading or humiliating acts. 
Ralph was told Stuart was held down and had alcohol forced down his throat. He thinks it's a very real possibility that Stuart was assaulted in some way that night and that the very laws Stuart had helped change to fight back against the violence that killed his brother over the last four years were now being used against him as a weapon. Mike Babb was Premier at the time and he'd called for a review of the lockout laws. And um, Stuart started at that college that same day that the lockout law review was called. And so I had no idea. And you're talking about the, the 18 to 25-year-olds are the ones hardest hit by the lockout laws. And so he was walking into a minefield. Um, you have to understand that in these um, the first week is all about settling into the universities and back. It's just the colleges come back. But these are young people who have been affected by the lockout laws, undoubtedly, um, and they invite people from outside the college to come in to take part in the initiations as well, which... None of this was known to me. Stuart didn't return to uni. He was living with his parents in Sydney and eventually took on part-time work at the Royal North Shore Hospital. One morning in July, when Ralph opened his door to wake him up, Stuart was gone. And I went into his bedroom at 6.30 and he wasn't in his bed and his um, pillow and his doona were missing, so I thought he must have been upstairs. And I went up and he wasn't there and I thought, oh, this is strange. And the car, I noticed the car keys were missing, so I went down to the garage and the car had gone. And um, I woke up, Cathy, and said, Stu's not here. We tried to call him. His phone was ringing, but he wasn't answering. And um, we called the homicide division because uh, we you know, we'd become friends and said, um, they said, look, we'll call Chatswood Police for you. Um, they called back and said, we've called the police. We've explained the situation. You need to go in and see them. And then about 15 minutes later, they, the Homicide Division called back and said, look, they're going to come to you. Three police turned up in Linfield and asked us a lot of questions. And then Madeline came up crying, saying she'd been was on medication for depression after and anxiety after Tom's death, um, but she hadn't been taking them for a while. And she said, all of my medication is missing. Uh, so they did a triangulation on Stuart's mobile phone and found that it was at Mona Vale outside a gym. And Stuart used to visit that gym, so I thought, oh, thank God, he's just on the treadmill or lifting weights. Uh, so the police deployed police cars up there. Uh, the car wasn't outside. They went into the gym and said he hasn't been in uh, for about a week or so. Madeline said, I can't just sit here waiting to hear what's happened. I'm going to go up there and see if I can find the car because I know what it looks like. And so Madeline went and then you know, time was just ticking and I said, I can't sit here either, Cathy. You know, why don't you stay here? I'll go up as well. And so I got up there and um, I'm driving along and my phone went and it was Cathy calling, uh, but a policewoman was on the other end. And uh, she said to me, we found Stuart. And I said, oh, thank, thank the Lord, is he okay? And she said, no, he's dead. Just like that. When we saw, we didn't see Stuart's body till about 24 hours later in Glebe, in the coroner's court in Glebe. 
and uh, the police had broken into the car, smashed the windows to get into him, and um, he still had glass all over him from the windows being smashed. people who have lost children to you know, medical conditions or homicide and I think it um, you learn to live with the grief but um, it never leaves you so you have to learn to live with it and um, just getting up every morning and just you know I think about both of them throughout the entire day every day and uh, wondering what they're doing and if they were here you know there'd be young men you know I think Tom would be almost he'd be 27 Stuart would be 22 now and um you know, those years that have passed are, you know, years that we've lost a lot of laughter and a lot of fun and a lot of good memories. So you can't help but look at other children of their age and think, I wonder what they'd be doing. For a long time, Ralph didn't seek out professional help, trying to manage the unfathomable grief of losing his two sons and the life he once knew. But last year... Finally opening up and trying to recover, the man who's been to hell and back reached even darker depths, uncovering a pain he'd buried since childhood and had never spoken about publicly before. And when I was at boarding school, my parents shipped me off to boarding school in England uh, every young age seven. So I'm going back a long time, I'm 61 now. And the principal, the headmaster, used to sexually and violently assault me every two or three days. I developed a stutter at school. I couldn't speak because of the violence towards me. And um, the headmaster used to, you know, make me read the lesson in front of the entire school, knowing that I'd stutter the whole way through it. Some kind of perverse man. I'd put it into this box and close the box in my brain. And uh, I'd never gone back to that box until the grief just was coming over me in waves, going, something's, you know, there's something in my childhood that's just still got a hold of me. And um, but I can talk about it now. So um, I'd looked at people, you know, coming out, you know, kind of, you know, talking about what had happened in their childhood as an adult. Now on the news we see all the stuff about, you know, I was sexually assaulted back when I was a little boy and all this kind of thing. For God's sake, why don't you talk about it earlier? I'd be saying to myself when I was seeing, the, seeing these things in the news. And then, and then, you know, it happened to me as well. But I'd never, that box was still firmly shut tight. And it's only when you go back and start to look at what happened to your childhood that you start to realise the kind of person you are. All he can do now is hope to inspire a legacy of kindness, a kindness he and both his sons sadly weren't afforded. And so we decided to change the foundation to stay kind, so SK after Stuart's initials. And... um, re-kind re, of rework the foundation. It took a lot of persuasion of the board, our board, I have to say, because, you know, with the, the previous foundation, you can touch the safe spaces, you can see the value of the work, but stay kind is something you can't touch. You can't touch kindness. This month, the last of the lockout laws that were sparked in part by Tom's death and which steered the Kelly family on the course which saw Stuart take his own life have been lifted. The reports, rallies protests about their effectiveness, the impacts they've had on Sydney and premiers making decisions have come and gone. But Ralph remains on the cautious side. It's, it's a difficult question to answer. It's difficult from the fact that um, you wonder the motivation for doing that. Um, 
I have this um, thing inside me that says, is this the right decision? Um, I hope it is for all the right reasons, but it would be awfully sad if we got back to a state of violence in this city. The cross is inarguably quieter these days, but the Take Care teams, TK for Thomas Kelly, have been there for more than 70,000 young people in the last seven years. Um, yeah, there's, there's definitely been some confronting things that we've seen out here. We've seen many overdoses. I recently had an incident where a girl had um, attempted suicide in the bathrooms of Town Hall Station. I, I can't say for sure what would have happened if we hadn't arrived in that missing time before an ambulance got here or the police got here to assist us. It's, we like to call them sliding door moments and they're tiny little actions that all of us do that can just completely change the course of something. So a perfect example is who we're looking after right now. He could have gone to sleep tonight and not woken up with a head injury that none of us knew about. There's so many opportunities for everyone every day life to help people. If everyone in Australia did one small act of kindness every day, I think we would have 9.1 billion acts of kindness a year. I don't understand why people are so violent. No, I don't understand either. But if you had kindness, then you, we wouldn't have bullying at school. We, we wouldn't need a lot of um, charities that are alive today because if you have kindness, you know, suicide would drop, you know, bullying in schools would drop and all, all that thing, we would live in a, a peaceful, beautiful world. If you'd like to see more of this story with Ralph Kelly, head over to the 10 News First YouTube page. I'm Steve Hart. Thanks for listening to 10 News First Person. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.